You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul. Um, Our theme music is a clip of Summer Nights by the Eric Jones Trio. It's provided by our friend Mark Chesanow, who plays with the Eric Jones Trio every Thursday and Sunday at Good Times Jazz Bar downtown. Hey everyone, welcome to Arts on the Air. This is Tamara Garvey and I am sitting with children's book writer Antoine Edie. Welcome. Hello Tamara, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm excited to to be here. Oh, thank you so much for coming. And um, I should say, Antoine has an amazing busy schedule and just came back from book tour all across the country and already on deadline for a new book. So I'm very honored that you were able to get me in for an interview. Thank you. Oh, no, seriously. Thank you for having me. Um, I mentioned before that I've listened to the podcast and the radio and everything since you first invited me here and it's been enjoyable to listen to also discover so many amazing like talent that's right here in Savannah. So I'm honored to have been invited, but also I love your interviewing skills Uh and I wanted to make this happen too. So I'm glad that we could make this happen at the last minute too. Thank you. That means a lot to me. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I think the whole, my whole point of doing it and opening it up from just artists to like writers and musicians too, is just been discovering how common the creative process is for everybody, which I think is really cool. And like, just the wave that people go through as they're creating and kind of the self-doubt and all this stuff, I think it's fascinating how it's sort of really mirrored for all different creators. Yeah, absolutely. It's like an invisible thread. There's so many invisible threads that kind of connect all of us. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, Okay, I want to start out. I'm going to read a little bit of your bio from your site. Mm. So Antoine Eady grew up in Garnet, South Carolina, where he spent most of his days riding four-wheelers, fishing, and imagining a world without limitations. He is the author of Nigel and the Moon, along with the upcoming titles... Micah's Rise and The Last Stand. Okay, so, and like I mentioned, you are um, on a break right now from a book tour that you've been doing and also under deadline for the next book that's coming out is Micah's Rise, right? Yes, um, that one is done, but I'm on a deadline for a young adult anthology. It's a poetry anthology with uh, the likes of Nikki Giovanni and so many other amazing talent. Um, and it's called Poem Hood, Our Black Revival. And like I said, it's a young adult anthology, and that comes out January 2024. And in between updating my website, there have been a few more titles that have been announced that I haven't gotten to yet. (laughs) That's incredible. I'll update it once I (laughs) relax a little bit. (laughs) Um, I'll go back to the beginning and say, um, so you went to Clemson University, right? Yes. Okay, what did you study there? Ooh, go Tigers. Um, (laughs) So this is a long story, but um, the short version is I majored in... Uh, psychology, a BS in psychology, uh, minor in animal and veterinary science. I initially was a pre-vet med student and major and I switched later on um, because I actually wanted to switch my major to creative writing my senior year and at that time it would have put me behind two additional years and I remember calling my parents and telling them that I wanted to switch majors Um, and at that point my mom was like you know how to write, you know how to write, get your degree get a degree and then do your thing later on okay. and initially I was a little upset I was like oh they don't get it they don't understand um, but they knew what they were talking about so yeah now when you look back on it you think that, that was good yeah absolutely advice. instead of me staying because it was always inside of me I just wanted that um, I guess the classroom experience that I thought I needed uh, even though I've still done like workshops and things later on but I totally made the right call by yeah. just graduating. I was actually, I was going to ask you about this because on, it did say on your site that you were the first in your family to graduate from college. So I didn't yeah. know if you felt, if there was a lot of encouragement and pressure to study something very like career oriented and not something sort of abstract like creative writing or English or something. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, um, it wasn't pressure from any parents. It wasn't pressure from siblings. It was pressure that I placed on myself. Yeah. Um, I felt like once I made it into Clemson University and got into a lot of schools, I didn't want to risk it by studying something that was not as practical as science. And I figured, well, there's pre-veterinary medicine. I love animals. I could do this undergrad, then go to vet school and take off from there. Um, but I always wrote and it was something I started doing like in the second grade, but again, it wasn't practical. I said, well, maybe one day I'll publish something. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was never any pressure from my parents or siblings or family members. Um, my siblings are all amazing. I have uh, military siblings and I have siblings that just went into the workforce, mm-hmm. but they're amazing and super talented and brilliant. Um, but for me, college was just something I wanted to do. I heard about it one day and then I heard about Clemson university <laughs> and I said, you know what? I'm going to get there. I had no idea how it was about to happen. My mm-hmm. parents didn't go to college either. 
together and I made it happen. I put it on my 10 year plan when I was in the eighth grade. Wow. Um, and yeah, I made that happen and a few other things from that list too. But I always say that had I dreamt a thousand dreams, my parents would have supported me a thousand times. So I come from a very supportive family with whatever decision I wanted to make, whatever career I wanted to choose, they would have been right there with me. Well, I love just the, the sort of like language that you're using in this is very akin to your book, Nigel on the Moon. So I, I'm loving just the, the thing about dreams and your parents and just thinking about this from such an early age is kind of amazing that as yeah. a child, that you, you know, you already were just writing for fun and that you were already thinking of college is pretty incredible. Like, it's a very incredible child. I think so. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what year was that that you arrived here? Ooh, 2016. I arrived okay. in 2016. So yeah. recent-ish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I still kind of have my feet in... Um, so, uh, in South Carolina as yeah, well. I was kind of community. living both and living both places. But yeah, officially w- was around 2016. So you were commuting there for your veterinary job? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, I like, I mean, just that you, you said that you minored in veterinary medicine in college and then you did end up working in that for a while. It's interesting. Yeah. I feel like that can really inform, I mean, in the children's book field, I feel like there's a whole world of animals and things. So I, there is. Funny enough, I have not written any animal characters yeah. yet. But, uh, and <laughs> but I, imagine the stories. I know, and I have, uh, I think, one picture book coming out for the next four or five years. Um, and a lot of other ideas, but none of them are animal related. And I think a part of that, which we may get into later, um, is because there is a big disconnect between black creator, black creators writing black characters. There aren't a lot of black characters in children's books. And those that are there, majority of them are not written by black creators. Not saying that they have to be, but um, I wanted to at least add my voice to that space because there are already more animals represented in children's book than there are black characters and the number one de- demographic are white characters mm-hmm. and then it's animals then uh, black characters wow and then it goes down to other characters of color but there's a big um a big difference in a percentage of what's represented on our shelves that makes perfect sense yeah um so t- okay so you moved here in 2016 and you were working full-time in veterinary science mm-hmm. and then so how did it come to be that you, you did you write the book first and then reach out to editors or how did this even yeah happen? so i was writing on and off um honestly when i moved here i wasn't writing at all i was just adulting as people yeah. would say yeah. um i was adulting i was working in animal medicine uh, that was 10 to 12 hour days, especially when I was commuting still to South Carolina. That took up majority of my time uh, for sure. And it wasn't until 2019, I would say maybe 2018, 2019. But 2019, um, I met Nana Kwame Audrey Brenya, the author of Friday Black, a short story collection. I met him at the Savannah Book Fest, and he's a oh. young black author. We're around the same age, and I saw him there. And I was like, wow, like, here's this young guy doing the same thing that I want to do. And I always say that it turned a far-fetched dream into an attainable goal. For the first time in my life, I met a young black male author, someone who was living the life that I wanted, in a sense, to see myself. Because before, it was just a far-fetched dream. I couldn't actually manifest it. I couldn't see it for myself. But I knew I wanted it. But because I had never seen it in person, I didn't know what it would even see, like, yeah. feel like or look like and um, yeah it's like 30,000 steps away you have no idea what the first step is exactly exactly so it started from there that same day when I met him that night I started writing again wow. um, and again he's an adult short story uh, uh, writer but he also he's a novelist now he has a novel coming out but um, I started with picture books and I was rejected I started the uh, I started learning about writers market and these other um, resources but I Went the traditional route. I wanted to query agents mm-hmm. and go from querying agents to being on submission once you got an agent to editors. But um, we could talk about it some more too. But if you want to know the whole thing, uh, I'll talk <laughs> about it. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea. So you went home and started writing, but then, like, there just there's so many steps to getting it in front of somebody's desk. And then, and also, I'd be very curious just how far into the book do you have to get? by yourself before you can show it to someone yeah absolutely okay well i'll say this nigel and the moon is my debut it came out february of this year um but it is actually my fifth picture book it's the first to be published it's the fifth uh book that i've uh written and um when i started in 2019 like most people I just assumed I could write a picture book. I thought it would be pretty easy. I wrote my first picture book in 2007 um, as a high school uh, senior. Um, It was a class project and it was something I would read to the community kids. Um, But I had no idea that I would 
love picture books as much as I do now. I always thought they would be something I would do when I became way older. Um, I always wanted to write novels. And fast forward all of these years later, when I started writing it, it was because of the facts that I mentioned earlier. I always gifted picture books to my uh, siblings' kids, to my friends' kids. I would always, baby showers, birthdays, I always bought books for them. Um, And then when I would go into the Barnes & Noble and order from Amazon and even go into Walmart and our local independent stores, I started researching like how many books of color with characters of color exist, how many picture books with characters of color are out there, how many of those are written by people of color. Um, And I saw the disturbing facts in the sense that, again, there are more animals represented then, yeah, that um, is a really damning fact. Yeah, yeah. And, and but also the picture books, I mean, which again, creators can write and create the characters that they want. They don't have to identify with that person, but I just want it to be more of a balance. Yeah. Um, because the question then became, well, why aren't there more creators of color? And that's when I learned about the gatekeeping side of traditional publication. Yeah. And that just kind of, I was like, okay, well, I know what I'm up against. I'm going to write. And that's what I did. I wrote nonstop. I sacrificed. I was having this conversation with a friend earlier. I sacrificed my social life. I sacrificed everything. And I was like day in and day out. I was living, breathing, eating the craft of picture books. Um, and I was writing again. My first one was rejected by maybe 40 or 50 agents. My second one was rejected by a lot of agents. Um, my third book that actually got me um, a few agent offers, um, still 2019. So I went from February 2019 until May-ish 2019. Oh, that's very fast. Yeah, yeah, because I honestly, I sacrificed everything. It was day in and day out um, while working in animal medicine, so 10 to 12 hours. But before work, after work, during my lunch breaks, it was, I was serious about it because I knew seeing those stats really, it it fired, it ignited something inside of me. Um, And I I did. When I say sacrifice, I'm not even, it's not an exaggeration by any means. I lived and breathed that. and finally, May 2019, after my first two books were rejected by everyone, my third book was then, um, it garnered, I think, four or five interests from agents, like multiple agent offers. Mm. And finally, I signed with my agent, but then that book was then rejected by every publisher. Okay, so my third wow. book was then rejected by every publisher. And in between, time, in between that, I wrote a fourth picture book um, that was then rejected. And then my fifth one, Niagara and the Moon, I've almost a year later um came up with the idea with and worked on revised revised and wow. submitted to my agent and we submitted it to publishers and then it went to auction um, i wanted to talk so specifically about your book nigel and the moon that's been yeah. this huge hit so yeah the way that i pitch it is nigel and the moon is a story about a young boy who's afraid to tell the world his dreams so he shares them with the moon at night mm. it's a story of a young boy discovering his dreams and finding his voice I lo- it was very interesting when you were talking earlier about um, that you you know were, were gifting books to all the young kids in your life, which I love. I think that's a really cool thing to do. That Thank you. that there's not a lot of black characters in books, and that also a lot of the authors are not black. So it's like this big circle where unless kids are growing up seeing black kids in books, and maybe they don't even imagine I could grow up to write these. So like one of these has to happen first. It's very hard. Exactly. That's a lot. Exactly, and that's why initially there's so much of myself, and I know this is not a, a isolated experience, but there are a lot of black authors, especially in the YA space, who never wrote black characters. They wrote all white characters because that's what we were. Majority of us were used to reading yeah. growing up in a young adult space were all white characters. So some of us didn't even think that black characters could exist in these worlds, in these fantasy worlds, let alone like you know contemporary. But um, it's. I, I do a lot of school visits and especially in um, areas where there are, uh, I call them young dreamers, but young dreamers of color, because I want them to see the representation because I can only imagine, it took me 2019 for that, for me to meet someone like me who looked like me, for me to think, to know that this was possible. So I can only imagine what this experience is probably like doing for the young dreamers that could see me, see my hair, see my skin, um, see this story to know that it's written by me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, you can get to them so much younger. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think just speaking for myself, I feel like growing up, you always heard um, a lot of like, I guess TV and movies and book and children's books are like, you know, they have male, male characters. 
and it's assumed that like girls and women will go see media with men but you right. can't assume the opposite like men aren't interested in girls and exactly women's so i would assume it's the same with like white and black as well where black kids are just like well you have to read books about white kids and it's not as and it's like if you were going to write a book with black characters then the people funding it are not assuming that they're going to get everybody reading it so yeah and you know and, and that was it's a sad kind of thing because dr rudine sims bishop she's the one who coined the term um, windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. And she did so in the 90s when she came up with the article about children's literature. She talked about books serving as a mirror for those of us that where we can see our own experiences reflected back to us through books. But it's also a window where experiences that aren't like ours, we are able to peek into yeah. and learn and have empathy and understanding of other cultures, other races, other marginalizations that are not our own and then sliding glass doors where sometimes we can step into those lives for a moment and then step back into our own lives and that's what books are and the fact that she coined that in the 90s and we're still having to fight for that kind of representation on all sides yeah then it's it's, it's very telling but yeah kudos to dr redine sims bishop for even coining that yeah, yeah that's I, I actually hadn't heard that term but that is beautiful i love those three descriptors but you. yeah like you said it's kind of crazy if it was in the 90s and that was 25 years ago and yeah. it still was a fight to be getting mm -hmm. yeah media out there um did you so in the the process of getting your book published did you um how, how did the editing process go? Did you feel like you had to fight for certain things that you wanted to keep in there at all? Yeah, so this is a definitely why I was ready for this podcast um, or to talk to you because <laughs> I wanted to talk about creative, creative control and the idea of what you may lose if you lose anything. When you have a great agent, there is no loss of creative control. I, I can't speak for everyone, but all right, first let me say, Perception is subjective to our own realities. Yeah. So I am speaking from my own reality, but also some of the experiences that I've met through other authors and have learned about. So I don't want to generalize and say this is the experience that everyone goes through. In my experience, I have not lost creative control. A great agent, first, we must know that having no agent is better than having a bad agent. Huh. So those that are querying, I promise you, it is better to not have an agent at all than to have a bad agent. So take your time, take your time and make sure you ex like assess all agents, all agents that offer representation. So when my book went on submission, multiple editors wanted it. So when that happens, publishing houses then fight for the book. It goes to auction, which is a great feeling. Overwhelming, <laughs> but it's great. So um, I had two editors from HarperCollins fighting for it. Um, an editor, I believe, from Penguin Random House and a few other houses. So it's the big, um, the big places. Yeah, the big places. But also we did do smaller um, publishing houses as well. But those are ones that, like, you have a conversation with, with each editor. editor, And then um, that word trips me up all the time. So you have a conversation with each of them. You ask what are their editorial visions for the book. Where do, where do they see the marketing going? You get a feel for um, them. Like, what is your editorial process? Do you use Microsoft Word? Do you use Google Docs? Do you like to like have phone conversations? Do you like virtual, which it wasn't as much virtual as it is now because this was pre-pandemic. Wow, yeah. But um, but you ask like you get a feel for them because this is someone that you're going to be working with. And I have books with Harper Collins, and I have books books with Penguin Random House. Mm. And I see now that um that different editors have different editorial styles, different ways of communicating. And I love working with the two editors editors that I have. Interesting. So during that time, when I finally um settled, I got to choose which editor I wanted to work with. They all put in their offers for the book, and you don't don't have to take the first offer. You don't have to take the second offer. You don't have to take the highest offer. In the auction phase, there are two different auctions. One is the highest bid, where each publisher or each editor puts up the highest number that they're the highest advanced number that they'll go to during that auction. The other is a rolling, where you everyone will provide their first numbers, and then your agent will go back to them and say, "Well, so and so is offering this. Like, can you go higher?" And then if they can go higher on the rolling basis, then they'll go higher. Wow. That happens maybe twice. I don't know if it happens three times. Well, maybe three times. Um, and then you go from there. But again, you don't have to take the highest amount. It goes back to who do you think you yeah. can work, who's best to champion your book. That is the most important thing because this is a person you're about to be stuck with, essentially. So you want to make sure that this is a relationship that you can actually cultivate. Um, so once you get there, 
then we go through the like the process of editing. Um, I work with Mabel Sue at HarperCollins, Catherine Teagan Books. Mabel Sue is phenomenal. We, um, I love her editorial vision just from our conversation before I had selected any other editors, and I was like, oh, she's the one. She's the one. She's brilliant. And then from there, we started working on the book. But as far as creative control, before we signed that contract, my agent already spoke to like. We already have things in place that I get the final say on this. I'll get the final say on that. Yeah. So the agent is your the agent is the champion for your work and yeah. the champion for you it's because like your this is your yeah exactly it's your career. Yeah. It is your career and of course you're not just writing these books to send out your vision to someone else and then hands off. That is not how this works, especially when it's a great editor. Again, maybe some people have this experience. I have not. A lot of people that I work with and have gotten to know in publishing have not lost creative control of their stuff even when it comes down to illustrators illustrators um traditionally authors do not select their illustrators my editor was open enough to allow me to make suggestions but of course they know better than i do especially as a newbie in this industry yeah they know what to look for when it comes to an illustrator's work i don't have that eye yeah. especially when you go from fine artist to someone that can do picture books they're all different mediums and and not all of it um transfers um properly or easily yeah. right so we um the design team harper collins at Catherine tegan books came up with a list of illustrators and i was able to see sample work and also this is something that can take place when an editor really wants to represent your book when they really want to acquire your book during that auction phase then they'll sometimes go ahead and send sample artists. Oh. They'll be like, oh, this is the vision I have for this book. And you can ask them that too. Like, hey, do you have in, any illustrators in mind? Like that is a part oh, yeah. of you deciding who you want to work with. Was it So was it your agent who is the one who like came up with all these different qualities and qualifications to ask them to be bidding about? That is a beautiful question. Um, my agent did not. It was me. I My agent already knew like the more, the finite, like the advanced size. Yeah. And, the the legal stuff when it comes to option clause non-compete clause she was handling all of that stuff at the time and my current agent does that as well when it comes to like rights sub rights foreign rights all of that um hardcover versus uh, paperback when it comes to royalty rates so they take they took care of that however if i didn't come with that knowledge my agent definitely would have like schooled me on that Okay. Um, because I had already done my research and was like, what questions do you ask editors? Like, I took a deep dive because I was so serious about getting into this industry. And I honestly was fueled by the gatekeeping. I knew that I was going to be rejected a lot. I knew that was going to happen. But I also knew that what, what I was up against, I knew that I wanted to be in the traditional space. Because if I walk into a Barnes & Noble, if I walk into a Walmart, the chances of me being blindfolded and grabbing a book there i don't know what the percentage would be but it's slim to none that i would grab a book with a character of color on the cover so i knew what i was up against and then if i did do still blind like blindfolded if i grabbed that book there's a chance that it wouldn't have been written by an author of color and again i just want to stress that i'm not saying that everyone has to write what they know in that sense we don't i just want it to be more of a balance yeah because gatekeeping happens i know a lot of talented black creators creators of color lgbtqia plus creators that don't have the opportunities to get their work seen in front of agents and and editors because what we hear and i've heard this too is that they can't relate to the story or um they already have that story right and like there's only room for one exactly and yeah. that's and that's literally what it is and it came out recently too even with a situation with a um i would say a heavy hitter in the young adult space a black um she's amazing um she was told the same thing they were like oh we already have this author so we don't need yeah so yeah. and people literally were saying that they don't say it as much now because now we hold them accountable we've hold we've held the publishing industry accountable for the wrongdoings that have taken place so yeah because of course there would never be like a white male author would never be told like oh we already have this you know absolutely book about a disenfranchised young white man exactly and the funny thing is which is not really funny but this is i laugh through the pain is i don't, don't want to take us too much time but they they were getting the stories they just didn't want the stories from us and there yeah. was so it was weird but um and other people were saying well i wanted to help out with diversity a way to help out with diversity is to look at the gate look on the other side of the gate and we were right there because if you if you wanted to help out with diversity again the gatekeeping exists why i think it was my second or third book we went on submission to an editor this was before niger and the moon 
And they told me that they, they told my agent that they already had a book similar to that. But I always look at first day of school books. Do you know how many first day of right, school right. books exist <laughs> yeah. with white characters or even animals? And also children tear through a book and so like exactly. they need tons of books. Exactly. They need lots of books to read. But for us, no, there's only room for one. And a lot of yeah. that goes into, it's a longer story with they assume black characters won't sell and all these things, which we know isn't true. And now they're catching on to that now. So. Right, right. Yeah. But, and part of it, I guess, also is just like the parents and it coming down to the households too, where you want like for white families to go out to the bookstore and like pick up a book with a black child and bring it home to their kids mm-hmm. to read like that has to happen too yeah, yeah. and I've, I've experienced this with niger and the moon because some parents i've only experienced it like twice um where i was at a, a book festival and this dad is a white dad i know he meant well but he said oh i know who this will be good for and he had two his like daughters right there with them yeah but in my mind i was like okay maybe he's talking about a black friend because he's like, oh, I know who this would be good for. And I'm like, well, no, this is a story about a young black boy, but it's for everyone. Yes. It's for everyone. Of course, I'm always keeping my young black dreamers in mind because I know that experience. I know what that feels like. I know what a, having a lack feels like. So I definitely write with them in mind. But this is for dreamers. This is a story about a young boy who's yeah. afraid to tell his world his dreams. It's for the shy kid. It's for the kid with big dreams. It's for the kid with too many dreams. It's for the kid that's a little more hesitant to share their dreams. Like they, They're doing a disservice by only thinking that white kids have to read white characters. It's a disservice, and that's where we're lacking empathy as well, because you're giving them the mirrors, and we're missing out on the windows and the sliding glass doors. You're missing out on entire human experience by being so limited in your own. Yeah, I think that is, that. well, that is a beautiful thing. We're going to take a break right now. There's a great spot to end on, and when we come back, we're going to talk a lot about, um, so Antoine Edie's had so much success with this first picture book, Nigel and the Moon, so we will talk more about that when we come back. Listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul. Trees are one of Chatham County's most treasured natural resources. Beyond their beauty and cultural significance, the impact of trees are far reaching and compounding, spanning from economic benefits to health improvements to climate change resilience. Trees are woven into every aspect of our lives. Savannah Tree Foundation protects and grows Chatham County's urban forest through tree planting, community engagement, and advocacy. More information is available at savannatree.org. This portion of WRUU's programming is brought to you by listeners and by Brighter Day Natural Foods. Brighter Day Natural Foods has been serving Savannah's healthy food and supplement needs since 1978. It is located at the corner of Bull Street and Park Avenue. They have online ordering and curbside delivery available. And now a walk-up window for smoothies, juices, and sandwiches from the deli. They are open from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday and 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Sunday. More information can be found at brighterdayfoods.com. What does it mean when we say that WRUU is a community radio station? It doesn't just mean that we invite the community to create programming. And it doesn't just mean that we're a voice for the community. It also means that we're counting on the community to keep us going. And you are the community. Almost all of our modest budget comes from small annual or monthly donations from listeners like you. You get to enjoy our community-focused programming because many others have stepped forward to do their part. Now do your part by joining our community of listener donors. Go to WRUU.org right now and make a one-time or monthly donation. And thank you for supporting Savannah's community radio station, 107.5 FM. Hey everyone, welcome back to Arts on the Air. This is Tamara Garvey, and I'm pleased to be here with children's book author and soon to be YA author as well, Antoine Eady. Welcome back. Thank you, thank you. I promise this one will be more lighthearted. <laughs> thank you all for listening so far. No. <laughs> if you're still here, welcome back. They're all still here. It's wonderful. <laughs> so this book, Nigel and the Moon, has had this incredible success, and I went on your website and your Instagram, and I saw there all these various groups that have chosen it as a pick like New York Public Library, the Chicago Public Library. It was talked about on the Today Show. You've been reading it in elementary schools. It was literally on billboards, which is amazing. And one of the pics I saw that was really fascinating, it said the Colin Kaepernick 
current favorite children's picture book. Yeah. That list, which I thought was really fascinating. How did that feel to hear that? That one surprised me. Uh, Colin Kaepernick came out with a picture book this year, too, and he did a post on a guest post on Barnes & Noble's website. And um, I saw the post and I was like, oh, I'll just read this. Like, what picture books did he mention? And when I saw my book there, I was like, wow. <laughs> I was blown away by it. Um, and it's also been a Barnes & Noble Best Book of tw- 2022, mm. Publishers Weekly uh, Best Book of 2022, one of Amazon's Best Books of the Year, uh, and a few others. And it's just been, wow. I'm sitting in a space of gratitude. The one thing that I wanted to do this entire year was to make sure I didn't let the year like race by without being able to have moments of taking taking this experience in, sitting in gratitude. Um, and it's overwhelming sometimes, but in a good way, because I, I asked myself, like, where do you what can you do when your body is so like overflowing with gratitude and you don't know how to express it anymore i've had a gratitude journal since 2012 i always write down my gratitude <laughs> i verbalize it but this you're on the cutting edge of the yeah, gratitude journaling but this moment has just been like wow like how do i process this um and also uh jenna bush hager selected niger in the moon as one of her um summer read this mm. like picks um, yes, for her. So she was on the today show yeah about that, yeah right? so she was on the today show isaac fitzgerald um selected Niger in the Moon as a Today Show pick in April um, as a children's book, as his children's book pick, and that was phenomenal. Yeah, um, he's another famous author, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Isaac, <laughs> yeah, New York Times bestselling author. Isaac's amazing. I was just, I didn't know Isaac at the time, and now I've gotten to know him, but oh. just super grateful that he did. I have so <laughs> many people to, like, send thank yous to because the way it's taken off, the way it's been received, especially by young dreamers. I've done visits in New York, L.A., Savannah, Bluffton, Atlanta, oh my gosh, and a few other places too, um, virtually in D.C. and other places. And the way that young dreamers have like taken to this book, that is the best, that would have been the best gift for me. Without the best of the year picks, without the Today Show, without any of those other things, yeah. just knowing that young dreamers are gravitating towards this book and loving it yeah that is the gift and i'm not saying that to be that guy but i truly mean that yeah of course but then the thing is like getting all those accolades and press is what gets it out there so that more it reaches more young dreamers yeah we Um, just my tour actually just wrapped up where we it was through jumpstart it's called read for the record and what they do is every year they select a book and on that day on october 27th same day same book millions of people around the world come together to read that book and this year it was niger in the moon wow and the organization also purchased and allowed like distributed for free um over 200 and something thousand copies of the book to young dreamers in underserved areas and that was like the biggest it was phenomenal to meet those young dreamers it was phenomenal to help be a part of that process to like do events with them to like yeah oh, yeah I'm sure I've been when loving you see it. just the the scale of the numbers I'm sure is insane. yeah like when you mentioned that it was on an Amazon list of like an Amazon pick and then you just see like you're ranking an Amazon jumping yeah. I'm sure is insane yeah, yeah. so you um, said when you started you'd written a few picture books and yeah. you were shopping them around and they weren't getting picked up what do you think it is about this book that was different because I, I presume the other books were also about like a young black child too yeah so yeah. What, yeah what is it about this one except for one one was I forgot I did actually write um an animal one was about a banana and a cheetah that's a long story <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that one so just now um which one day I'm going to tell that story I promise you um but yes the rest were um black children for Nigel and the Moon I, there are two reasons why I think this book is the one that resonated. I think I tapped into the parts of myself that I was denying myself. The parts of myself that I was denying my work. Um, and that was me tackling grief. Niger in the Moon is a story, again, about a young boy who's afraid to tell the world his dreams, so he shares them with the moon at night. Nigel is me as a young kid. I, don't, I didn't have the language for it then, but I have the language for it now. That space between myself and the moon when I stood on my parents' porch in South Carolina, that distance, that darkness offered safety. It offered a safe space. And I wanted to offer a safe space to so many of us that need it. But the other part of it, I wanted to tell a story about dreams because 
of all the young dreamers that we've lost and the ones that we've had taken from us. I wanted to give them a place because I have a, uh, I struggle challenging, I struggle with understanding grief when it comes to young dreamers. So I wanted to give them a place where their dreams could live forever. So I wanted to tell a story that just talked about so many different dreams um, because those dreams can't be lived in this world anymore. Why I think this story resonates with so many young dreamers when I do school visits, when I do virtual visits, I think it's because they see themselves in the book. There's a scene where Nigel's going to the library. There's a scene where Nigel's sitting inside the classroom with his classmates. There's a scene where he's just walking the street of his community. And it's not a far-fetched. It's not that far removed from their own realities. So it, sometimes I love looking at the engagement when they see the pictures and I'm like flipping through. They're like, oh, yeah, we go to the library. Oh, we sit in classrooms yeah. too. We raise our hands. And it's like that moment. I think that's why I resonated with them. And my other stories just didn't, like, it didn't, offer that in a sense it didn't offer a, a place where so many young dreamers can see themselves so many adults can see themselves uh, just not as universal yeah yeah because you know which not to say all stories have to be universal because that's also like very egotistical of us to think that we have to be a part of everything but because again it goes back to those those uh, windows and those sliding glass doors sometimes it's important to step out of ourselves yeah. and into someone else's shoes for a second but i will say that um with Nigel and just being able to tell the story with his uh, with his parents, with the dreams and the careers, this story just kind of pulled at heartstrings of a lot of adults who grew up with that fear of their own dreams. Um, some of us now are still struggling to live out our truth. Um, and I, I did it even when I was working at Animal Medicine. I still knew I wanted to be a writer, but I was afraid of admitting that to myself and other people. So I think it just appeals to a lot of people in that yeah. way. What are some of the... Um like things that children have said to you as you've read to them like uh, some, some really memorable like dreams that they've said to you yeah so you know i would say this i get fire truck a lot okay i'm getting mermaids more <laughs> um i've gotten i feel like astronaut is a really big one astronaut right? yeah i get astronaut a good yeah. bit Oh my gosh, I'm trying to think of some of the best ones, and I've been meaning to write these down. Just fire truck is very funny. Yeah, I get fire truck a lot. <laughs> they um, like to make a lot of noise. I absolutely, guess. superheroes. I get mm -hmm. uh, football players a lot too. Okay. Um, superheroes. I've gotten housekeepers. I've gotten janitors. Um, That's interesting. Do, do they have like a like a beloved parent or see, a relative? Who I don't did know. That? I don't why? know. Yeah, I don't know, but I love it though because that's what this book is about. It honors essential workers too. And again, this book was written yeah. before the pandemic, and we call them essential workers now. But I love that this story highlights that. It puts everyone on the same level. It highlights ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. So yes, talk about the custodial staff. And maybe somebody in their schools that they may see and the work that they do. And they're like, you know what? I want to do what Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so yeah, does. Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I love that. And I just love allowing them to dream and like put all of these dreams on such a like on the same level for me as doctors yeah. and lawyers as the ones that we normally hear about it's true and I, I could see that would be nice for like maybe for a kid if everybody around them is saying like astronaut doctor lawyer and then one kid is like i want to be a janitor then like yeah. you don't want that kid to then be made fun of for that so exactly. you're trying to like even just the space of them talking in the same words as your book you want it to be a safe democratic space. And yeah. Safe. yeah exactly That's interesting um, do you just to back up a little bit about create creatively? So now at this at this stage, you, I've caught you when you're home and a little blip mm -hmm. from the midst of all your book travels. But so you're working on, did you say three upcoming picture books and one YA anthology? Yeah, yeah. My part and all of those books are done. Okay. Um, they've sold. Now we have them scheduled to come out. I'm finishing up. Uh, I'm doing my part of the poetry anthology now that comes out January 2024. And I'm working on another young adult novel, um, and those are the projects that I'm currently tackling. Okay. Yeah. What is your day? Do you have a like a real schedule for your writing, or I sort when of you were do. in the process of working on the picture books? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I sort of do. Um, I can write. So I write around Savannah. I write in cafes. Um, I can do more edits, revising, in cafes. Um, usually, my origin, the, the when I'm getting the stories out initially, I have to kind of do that at home or in a place where I can just like be expressive because i'm very okay. like i'm emotional when i'm writing too. really yeah are you writing with your hand or on a computer Ooh, great question um sometimes it just i do both if i start on a computer 
then I know more than likely I'm gonna like handwrite it. If I handwrite it, I'm gonna go to the computer just to get something different. Yeah. I also, once I'm like almost in the final stages of it being done, excuse me, I'll have um, Microsoft Word or whatever system I'm using read it back to me. So I do that a lot too, so I can hear it uh, yeah. in a sense. That makes because um, so much of children's books is yeah. people being reading read aloud. To about yeah. It, yeah, so I do that. Um, that's one of my little tricks of like the editorial uh, phase. Are there some uh, things that when you hear it read out loud that catches you that you're like you have to change? Is there a certain? Yeah, I look for. Well, I'm, I'm big on because I'm a very lyrical writer, so I look for a cadence. I look for like the musicality of the language. Um, I'm not what I guess most not most but I'm not a necessarily a prosaic writer a lot of prose I love lyricism and I love that um, part in what I do I like to make it sing so there's something that I look for in the way that I would read it aloud and if I hear it um, and something doesn't seem right then I can adjust maybe it's the syllables maybe it's just the, the actual word and then I go to a th- a thesaurus and I'm like okay uh, I can I like swap this out nice so things like that um in the novel space, in the young adult novel space, uh, yeah, I'm toying with a few different styles as like a novel or a verse novel. So I'm like, and I'm, I'm also in the graphic novel space too. Oh. So I have a few things I'm like working on. Yeah, you feel like now that you've done this, it's like your world is broken wide open and you're just going into every single book yeah, space. At this yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm big on craft. So I only want to do it if I can honor the space I'm in. Because I wouldn't want someone to just jump into picture books and assume that it's easy. Right. Um, because it's actually been the toughest um, when it comes to... But that's what I love because I love making words. I love the the usage of words in a picture book. There's not a lot of room for fluff. You have to know that text and illustrations, there's a marriage between the two. I'm a textual writer. That's I can only do text. I'm not, a, not um, an illustrator. I have to know what words to leave off with an illustrator. If... I mentioned that someone's wearing wearing purple sneakers. I don't know if I need to say that in the text. The only time I need to say that in the text, if that's going to be relevant later, if a child in the classroom says, oh, I thought your sneakers were blue. But if that's not relevant at all, then the illustrator can just show that it's a a purple sneaker. Um, So you have to know that balance between the two and how to make that marriage work because that's what we give. Illustrators are phenomenal in their own right. They know what they're doing. Sometimes, if it's something that can't be explained, then you can leave an illustrator note or an um, art note. But for the most part, I love the illustrators I work with. Gracie Zhang is the illustrator of Niger the Moon, and she's phenomenal. Um, and she took the text above and beyond anything that I could have imagined. But yeah, um, my back to the the process, my day to day, I guess. Um, I ori- original storytelling takes place at home. I can do edits, revisions in cafes and public spaces. So, yeah, I do try to write every day, but I yeah. don't hold myself to it. If I don't write every day, I give myself grace because I've learned now that writing every day comes from a place of privilege. There's a reason why not a lot of people, that's a lot of pressure to add to yourself. We have other things to worry about, finances. We have households to worry about, yeah. so many other things where sometimes we just, just can't write every day. A lot of authors will say write while you wait or they'll say write every day. I know that's impossible for a lot of people, so I give myself grace. I usually try to be in a seat by 11 o'clock in the morning, and depending on if I'm doing revisions or original storytelling for the first time, like first draft, then I can work until like four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my day day is usually, sometimes it's earlier than that, but yeah. yeah. I like that, that kind of mid-morning, I feel like I'm like that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did wanna ask, so with the illustrations, did you, um, have have you met Gracie Zhang face to face at all, or finally, like, finally, yeah, yeah after we the did. book is all done? Because that's kind of amazing to think that like for a children's picture book, it's literally it's like fifty percent words and pictures, but that you two you don't even necessarily communicate. Yeah, it's like you're 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 like set up by yeah. the publisher, and then maybe you're talking by email and by Zoom and things like that. It's Absolutely, kind of fascinating. it is. It's a beautiful thing, but that's why I trust the illustrators I work with. So this is how it works. Traditionally, authors and illustrators do not communicate. That's not saying you're losing creative control. What that's saying is you're not forcing an illustrator to put your dog in a book where that Uh, the book has nothing to do with dogs. Like it's to protect the illustrator from getting pressured? Yes, because it happens where some authors would want the uh, illustrator to, hey, can you put my dog in this book? And this book has nothing to do with animals, but you just want your dog there just to be there. And it takes away from the illustrator's vision because just as I 
believe that I am talented in my own right as a writer. Illustrators are brilliant and talented in their own right too. So their idea of taking the text and imagining, that's what we trust them for. So then from there, Gracie um, is all communication through my editor. Wow. But that there are a lot of exceptions. Sometimes author and illustrators, authors and illustrators are friends. Like now, I know so many illustr illustrators. At that point, I was new. I know one illustrator that I want to collaborate with. Him and I, we've spoken about it. So when we do that, I know we'll be able to communicate yeah. because we respect each other well enough to know I'm not going to call him and say, hey, can you add this in the story? No, I'm going to let him do his thing with the story. Yeah. Um, so that happens a good bit where there are friendships that have already happened before yeah. the book. But like this traditional way, it literally, traditional, you weren't even talking to her through the yes. entire thing at all. That is right. so surprising me. I had no idea. No. And what I would do, because we were already friends on social media, what I would do is just say, when I saw like first round of sketches, second round of sketches, I'll say, Gracie, I cried. Like, Aww. this is so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. But I'd never said, but again, I still had the chance to offer editorial feedback. So they would send it to me and say, hey, are there any changes you want to make? Anything that you don't like? Anything that you want to see? And we'll like, and we'll take it back to Gracie. Mm -hmm. So that's how it works. It's not like, oh, you just give it to the illustrator and then that's it. You don't yeah. get a word in. No, you work because it's art and you want both, you want to satisfy both parties. Um, but again, the illustrators just, they deserve the respect that they they're that publishing has given them in a sense like let them have their their space i mentioned earlier that sometimes authors can do illustrator notes in picture books or art notes but you don't want to overdo that either because yeah. again i don't want to say oh i want nigel to have his hand raised right here because then I'm already taken away from the illustrator's vision if they read the manuscript yeah. and see that I've said, hey, can Nigel's hand be raised? No, I want them to approach it the way they would without any illustrated notes. Unless not, unless it's something that says, and it's not in the text that you have to say illustrated note, today, now it's dark versus it's nighttime versus uh, daytime. Yeah, yeah. But it's not written in Something's the text. Something very important to right. the story. Yeah. yeah, so that's the only time you should use illustrated notes. Yeah, like notes. a little goes a long way. Right. Interesting. I love it. So we're looking at, your book is sitting here as we're talking, and uh, the cover is so beautiful. It's this huge moon, and I love that the sky is not black, but it's this really pretty midnight blue. Yes. And the boy is like, he looks like he's sort of hugging the moon, or he just could be flying toward the moon. I know. I see it as an embrace. I, like I see. That. Yeah, I love it so much. And um, funny enough, so the... This is like gouache and watercolor, and what Gracie did, she actually, she's never, she's from Canada, lives in New York. She's never been to the South. So what Gracie did was she Googled Savannah, and she Googled the homes here, the historic homes. Oh. She saw how a lot of it was sun-baked and chipped, and she tried to kind of capture that in the art. And yeah. that's why it's this watercolor gouache setting kind of thing. Um, and also, fun fact, there's a library that's right here in Savannah that's in this book, too. Which library? Ooh. Is it the WW Law Library? No, it's okay. the uh, the Carnegie one. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So she she has that. The name's not there, but uh, yeah. So it's a lot of little like hidden things in there. But yeah. um, which she didn't. Another thing, she didn't have to because I didn't have, I didn't give her a setting. Yeah. But that's what she, she chose to do. Yeah. That's she. Cool. So that's it. She's she's phenomenal. But oh, your initial question about Gracie and I meeting. We met uh, finally. Uh, when I did, we did a, an event together in New York recently. But yeah, yeah, this was the first time we met was a few weeks ago. That must be amazing. So it's like after the book has had all the success and all these sales and then you finally are meeting. That's so funny. Yeah. Because it's a little bit like, hey, partner who helped me have this huge success. I know. About, um, we talked a little in our break about the publishing house, like how much they champion you and how much marketing you're going to get. And mm -hmm. I know that you said that initially you weren't like the book wasn't going to be like on the, the top list or whatever, but Barnes and Noble took a look at it early yeah. and loved it. And, and therefore then your publisher pushed it harder, right? Yeah, that happened. So when I started, um, I was new to social media, so I didn't have a large following. Um, and we took the book. I was a no-name author with a quiet book. Like I would describe Nigel and the Moon as a quiet book. Um, it's not, necessar ne not necessarily a commercial book that... Um, you know, with animals and dinosaurs and things that are even unicorns, which are very big now, dragons. Eh. Um, it's more like poetic and feelings. Right, right. Which I'm also telling people don't write to the market because the market changes a lot. It could be unicorns yeah. today, but literally in a few weeks, it could be donuts, like yeah. walking donuts. It changes so much. And especially because this book sold in 20, early 2020, so February 20, 
2020 and it was released February 2022. So if you try to write to the market by that time, That's like time, things yeah. are going to change. That's two years. Traditionally, picture books take two years. I sold a book last year, February 2021, that's not coming out until February 2025. Wow. And that's because I, the are a book, I'm booked. We wanted to space that one out because you don't want to cannibalize your work. Okay, so back to the original question. <laughs> you were asking about the marketing side of things. So when books are acquired, they look at a few things. The marketing team will look at your website. The sales team will look at, um, you know, prop, they do what's called P&L, profit and loss. So they look at comparable titles, comparative titles. So they'll look at Niger and the Moon, and then they'll look at books similar to Niger and the Moon um, to see how well they've done in the market. It's very like real estate comps. Exactly, like. exactly. And that's what they do. So if a book, um, again, depending on who the author is, depending on what the book is, the content of the book, and how well the previous books have done, then that's how they base your that's what they base your advance on. Yeah. And your advance is a good indicator of whether or not they see this as a lead title, which is like some of the top books that they'll promote heavily that season, whatever your public uh, your pub season is. Yeah. Barnes and Noble took interest in my book, um, and they told us early on that they wanted to promote it heavily during a certain month. Um, and then from there, at the same time when Barnes and Noble took interest in the book, I was. Um, and this was Barnes and Noble with corporate. So at, at the same time, I was um, doing local interviews. So I had, had an interview with Savannah, Savannah Morning News. I tried to get in the Savannah Book Festival. They don't allow picture book authors. That's fine. Really? That's fine. No, they don't. Because okay. the truth that we all know in publishing is that individuals don't move the needles. Like, the needle is only moved by publishers. They're the ones with the heavy machine. Yeah. Especially in yeah. Tr the traditional space. That's why we went through all of the rejections. That's why we went through all of the pain, the, the, the anxiety of checking our emails, is so that we could have that backing from the marketing team, the sales team. Yeah, it's just such a huge machine. It's a huge machine, but also control what you can control and leave the rest alone to your publisher. And that's exactly what I did. On a local level, I did. I tried to, um, I got interviews with Savannah Morning News. I emailed um, the Savannah Book Fest to see if they will allow me to like, you know, yeah. present. They said <laughs> you, no. You tried. Right, I tried. They said no, but what they <laughs> did do was put me in contact with someone um, that was then allowed, that allowed me to be on um, WSAV's The Bridge. Oh, that's cool. so, so stuff like that. They did help yeah. out, so not gonna knock that at all, even though I still wanna present that, which I will one day, either yeah. in the young adult <laughs> space or adult space. Um, but yes, here we are, and the book is doing well. So, so and you've gotten to travel. You went to New York, uh, Chicago. You said Atlanta, yeah. many cities. Yeah, a lot of cities. It was yeah. a multi-city tour. Um, does that feel glamorous? Like, it does. Yeah, it does. Honestly, <laughs> you know, I would say that it does because you get your per diem and you get like you know put up in a nice hotel and my publicist is like making the arrangements. That's very exciting. Yeah, and then it was you really arrive exciting. at the event and it's for you and everybody knows exactly they're expected. Yeah, I would say also cool. because I'm an introvert too, so it's a little. It was it was exhausting. Yeah. So I don't want to just talk about the glitz and glam now that I'm like out of it a little bit because I'm still like recovering. I'm still exhausted yeah. a little bit, especially because I went straight from that to writing on deadline. Because um, you have to be on. It's like performing. You're kind of on, and then you can go back to your hotel room and be like, no, I can just be quiet. Exactly. And there were moments where I told the organizers like, hey, I may not be able to do dinner tonight, or I can't do lunch. Yeah. yeah. With the organizers because I. I it took me maybe stop two or three before I had to before I could be as vocal as I am now about yeah. it. And it took me having that conversation with my publicist too to say, "Hey, is it okay? Like, I love that they um, offered to take me to lunch or dinner, but I was like, I truly have to recharge. And it's not me being like I didn't want to be a diva or anything because right. I'm so new. But I had to be honest because when I present, I give it all. I give it all to the young dreamers. Yeah. I'm animated. I'm having fun with them. I'm calling on them. I'm moving around. I'm engaging with them. Sometimes I'm in like a Superman suit, a cape, or I'm <laughs> in like an astronaut suit. I'm having a fun time with them. So that's why I'm there. I want to leave it all on the stage for yeah. them. So sometimes I just need to go back to the hotel. I think honestly, and the topic of introversion versus versus extroversion comes up on almost every episode of this. Because, but I would think that you know for. The people who are working with authors, they're used to you being introverted. I think that's a very common 
trait, so it can't, it can't, so. it can't have been shocking for them. No, but you know, but it's funny because people, I guess they see my social media and they think I'm an extrovert, which I get that a lot. They see the social media and they think, especially the presentations, they'll see those the snippets of me like performing yeah. for the kids, and then they're thinking like, oh, like he's an extrovert and I smile a lot and I engage. Like once I'm in front of someone, I'm gonna talk. I'll talk. Obviously, people are probably like, this boy rambles a lot. <laughs> yes, I talk a lot already. Because, but then after this conversation, I'll be depleted. Yeah. I'll well, be that's, depleted. I mean, yeah, it's like a comment. I feel like people maybe think that introverts, it means that you're this like social weirdo who's like hiding behind your hair. Right. But you could be really good talking to people and but it is like a performance and then you're tired and you have to go home. Because I feel like that too when I do a craft show where I'm good all day talking to people and it's like a performance and then I just want to go home and hang yeah, out absolutely. with the dog. Right. Yeah. And recharge. Yeah. Recharging. I think, yeah, it's more about what drains or gives you energy, I think, mm-hmm. as opposed to like how good or loquacious you are talking. Exactly. Yeah. I do want to say you mentioned your Twitter and I looked at your Twitter just for a second because I'm not a Twitter person, but it looks like you're um, in like a big, big realm of watching cheesy Christmas movies. <laughs> like that's your hobby right now. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> it's like a, oh a my thread gosh. you're keeping up with your people. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you caught me off guard with that one. Um, I <laughs> like am, in your spare time. That's what you're doing. I am. I am. And you know, it's brought. It's giving me so much joy. It is my way um, because I struggle to relax. Going back to the lack, the lack of representation is out there. Sometimes I feel like I just have so much making up to do that I can't slow down. I shouldn't slow down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my relaxing right now. Unless it's a very good show. I just finished Wednesday, which I loved on Netflix. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it was so good. Um, but Christmas movies. I actually have an idea for a Christmas story. And I don't know if I want to do like a screenplay or a adult novel of it. <laughs> so I actually just, um, I went to Barnes & Noble and I went to East Shaver and I bought a few Christmas romance novels. Oh, nice. Doing novels. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. right. I'm such, I'm believing <laughs> what mentor text. So I always, if I'm writing something, I've got to get that. Because again, it goes back to honoring the craft. I'm not a romance writer. So I would never dare step into that area, into that genre, knowing like romance is, 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 it takes skill. Yeah. So I am watching a lot of Christmas movies. <laughs> I have a list of them. I'm going to watch more oh, tonight. I, see. Okay, so I have work one. Research. Right. Yeah. So I have one that. Um. But you know, funny enough, no. This. Well, I guess it is kind of work research because this <laughs> one was just my enjoyment. The books were for my work, okay. but I guess I'm kind of surprised. Yeah, the movies definitely look like yeah. you're just doing it for fun. Yes. <laughs> not work. And I'm having so much fun with it. It's giving me <laughs> so good. much joy. So much joy. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny to come across that. Yes. Um, well, this is wonderful. I know you have a list of um, really cool resources to provide for aspiring authors, which I'm going to include, you know, links in the show notes for this. This is really cool. Do you want to speak quickly yeah. about any of this? And then we're going to include written as well where people can read it. Awesome. Thank you for giving me space to do this. Um, for listeners, um, when I started out, I didn't know much. Not even much. I didn't know anything. I had never heard of a literary agent until 2019. Never heard of them, never knew anything about the big five publishers. Um, And not saying you have to go to a big five either. I know a lot of phenomenal authors with smaller publishing houses and their books are like, they make waves. It's it's some of my favorite books come from smaller publishers. Um, So if you're interested in traditional publication, the first book I would recommend picking up is called Writer's Market. And that is at your local library. If not, then they should be able to order it for you. Writer's Market will tell you about uh, querying. It will tell you about agents and what they're looking for. It will tell you about publishers slash editors and what they're looking for. It will have the mailing address, sometimes email address, how to query these people. Um, And in the traditional space, you more than likely, I recommend people having an agent. It's not the end all be all. You don't have to have an agent. Because sometimes around December, a lot of the big five publishers actually open up to um, unagented writers. Oh, like unsolicited. Uh, so, yeah, so they allow you to sub to them. Now you'll be in the what they call the slush pile for months, but it is a way to get in. Now, what I recommend, I would be afraid of navigating this space without an agent. Okay. Without the right agent. Again, no agent is better than having a bad agent, so do not rush this. All right, so Writer's Market, you can get from your library. Yeah, like yeah. I said, Tamara's going to have all of this in the show notes too, but I hope this yes. serves you all well. Thank you so much for providing all that to people. It's very generous of you. Thank you. Um, and just a testament to how much research you did at the very beginning, which is cool to hear. You said you started from knowing nothing about all this, and you did all this research, and then look at you. It's a few years later. 
So this has been Antoine Edie and his hit children's picture book, Nigel on the Moon. He has upcoming books coming out, and in the show notes, I will have a link to his site, and then we're going to include all this um, information that he just gave you as well to up-and-coming authors. Thank you so much, Antoine. It has been a pleasure and an honor, and I'm just happy. I love what you're doing here in Savannah. Uh, You've introduced me to so much beautiful talent here, so thank you, and I just hope, listeners, I hope this was helpful if it is helpful please find me on social media let me know because (laughs) i feel like i've been rambling but (laughs) follow him on instagram engage with him on twitter about uh, cheesy christmas movies (laughs) as well because that's his hobby right (laughs) thank you antoine thank you next up on wruu that old savannah magic from 4 to 6 p.m it's a variety show featuring savannah history radio theater interviews and music You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul.